The following message was given by Nick Kidwell, the senior pastor of Valley Creek Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.valleycreek.church. Well, good morning, church. (laughs) Uh, I'm going to break my usual rhythm this morning and open our time together by immediately reading our sermon text. So please turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 12. Our specific text this morning is 12 verses 1 through 21, but I am going to read the last few verses of 11. I didn't tell the projection folks this, so you won't see it on the screen, the verses in 11. Preached on this a few months ago, but I'm reading them because there's a strong thematic tie that sets up our passage for us this morning. So we're going to start in chapter 11, verse 28. Let me pray for us before we read God's word. Father, we come before you this morning. We ask that you help us to receive from your word. We ask that you make your word clear and known to us. We need your spirit to understand. We need your spirit to move and affect our hearts. And I pray most of all, as we engage with your word this morning, Father, that you would impress upon us how merciful and gracious you are. Lift these things up to you and pray them in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right. Matthew eleven, twenty-eight. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And this is where chapter 12 picks up. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry. And they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered the synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him. And he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. 
He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I want to share with you this morning, I have to confess, I really, really wrestled this week with this text. Chapter 12 brings us another pharisaical confrontation with Christ, this time over the regulations of the Sabbath. And as I worked on this message, it just, it felt a bit like an animal I couldn't seem to wrangle. I couldn't find the right direction for us to go. And in fact, I had an entire message worked up and then I hit Saturday and I said, nope, I scrapped it and we started again. I saw so many threads that we could pull on together. But with each thread I pulled, I'd find a large ball of yarn at the other end, leaving us with more to discuss than we possibly had time to discuss. And so I continue to wrestle with the Lord to understand the main thrust of what he intends to communicate through this section of scripture and also what he intends for us to specifically receive in our time today, which ultimately, I think, in his spirit, he's helped me to see. But before we dive into that, I do want us to tug on some of those threads just a little bit because the other threads that we see here in this passage are there for a reason and they help us to understand the bigger picture. So one of those threads that I want us to tug on is uh, the threat of the Pharisees and their faulty approach to God and His Word. We learn a lot from the Pharisees, a lot of what not to do about things from the Pharisees, and we see here two things from them. One, that they add to God's Word, and two, that they misunderstand and misapply God's Word. The Pharisees, you may know, were an influential sect of Judaism. They were known for their strict religious practices and adherence to the law. They were often, as Scripture reveals, pious smug, self-satisfied, and a big part of their faulty approach to God involved a large body of oral teachings that they had elevated to the same level as the Scriptures. We'll dive specifically into that in chapter 15 when Jesus calls them out for teaching as commandments of God what are actually just traditions of men. And we do see that, though, here on display in this chapter. When the Pharisees interrogate Jesus in verse 2, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. They're not drawing upon the actual scriptures here. Yes, the word of the Lord prohibited work on the Sabbath, which is what they're charging the disciples with having done by plucking these heads of grain, but the idea that, that plucking a head of grain while passing a field, the idea that that constituted work, that was not something commanded by the Lord in His Word. They drew this conclusion through their own man-made fences that they had established around the Scriptures. They had added to God's Word. They also misunderstood God's Word. In response to their charges, the very first thing Jesus says is, have you not read? Jesus is saying, are you not familiar with the Scriptures? Have you not read the Scriptures? 
That's a very strong critique of the Pharisees. These are men who devoted their lives to studying and understanding the things of God. Of course, they had read the scriptures. But in Jesus' perspective, they had missed the point of the scriptures. We saw Jesus address this very thing back in the Sermon on the Mount. We saw how the Pharisees and the scribes were so concerned with the outward actions and the little rules and facets of the law that they missed the whole point of the laws themselves, which were to work on the heart of men. And now yet again, they betray the proper use of the law. They take the Lord's command for the Sabbath, which was meant to be a gracious gift of rest an expression of trust in the Lord, and they use it as a tool for self-righteous religion, making ritual observance the true means of their salvation, which God never intended it to be. Well, Jesus brings a sharp critique to these men, not because they have misunderstood his commands alone. Others have misunderstood Christ, but he doesn't necessarily bring this rebuke, but he brings this harsh critique because they revel in their misunderstanding. They puff themselves up with their false conceptions, and they use the whole religious system that God has instituted as a means for self-promotion and glorification rather than actual devotion to God. And in so doing, They place the same burden of self-righteous achievement on the shoulder of their hearers. That's a big thread that we see here in this passage, and it's one we could pull on, and it's one we will pull on more as we progress through Matthew. There's the thread of the Sabbath itself. What does it mean? What is it? How were these Pharisees right, and how were they not right about the Sabbath? There's the thread of the progressing timeline of Christ marching towards the cross. The Pharisees use these encounters as a reason to seek and to destroy Christ. Their self-righteous, pharisaical attitudes blinded them to the work that God was doing right in front of them and led them to want to destroy Christ. We could take a whole sermon talking about any one of these things, and that wouldn't be wrong. But as I was preparing this message and finding myself going down some of these pathways, I kept feeling discomfort. Something wasn't working. And why? Because while there are lessons in all of those things, none of those things capture the main point of why these stories are included here in the Scriptures. And that's what I want us to spend time in this morning. Because each of those things, they serve as a backdrop. A canvas that Matthew uses to highlight this truth, that Jesus Christ is merciful and gracious to the weak and needy. And the reason I think that this is the main thrust of this passage is that I see three interpretive keys that have been given us here to understand this section. First, we have the setup. Those last few verses of chapter 11 Jesus thanking the Father that he's hidden these truths about God from proud and arrogant men and revealed them to the humble. He says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart 
and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We get this setup, this proclamation of the light yoke that Christ invites us to. This is interpretive key number one. Then immediately following that, what do we see? We see these wise and understanding men, these arrogant men, the proud Pharisees, contrasting that light yoke of Christ with their heavy load of man-made self-righteous religion, finding hope in strict ritual observance rather than seeing the point of the laws themselves, which was communion with God. The burden of human religion is that we must achieve salvation ourselves. And that is what the Pharisees tout, whether they do so consciously or not. And then in response to this, the Lord gives us interpretive key number two. After a series of examples, which we'll speak of in a moment, revealing the true heart behind the Sabbath, he says, and if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the the guiltless. Christ emphasizes the heart of the law and the heart of God. Mercy, not slavish, self-righteous, ritualistic devotion, but sincere love wrapped up in the mercy of God. That's key number two. And then, after we see the interaction of the man with the withered hand, we get the final interpretive key given to us by Matthew himself as he quotes the prophet Isaiah in verses 28 to 21. And these verses speak of the messianic person of Christ and the global hope that he offers to the brokenhearted and the weak. That's key number three. We could dive into all those other threads this morning, but all those other threads ultimately are intended to help us to rest this morning in the easy yoke of Christ and God's desire for mercy and not sacrifice and His gentle spirit that does not quarrel or cry aloud, that does not break bruised reeds and does not extinguish smoldering wicks. Many people see God like the Pharisees, looking for a fight, looking for a reason to condemn, eager to heap rules and heavy burdens on his adherents, stoic, smug, out to destroy. Nothing could be further from the truth. And Matthew uses the Pharisees and these interactions to contrast their arrogant self-righteousness with the merciful and gracious spirit of our Lord. Now, before I go any further, let's make clear God does judge in that Isaiah passage as it continues on. We read this morning, there are proclamations of judgment. There is a point where Christ cries aloud and there is a shout of victory. God's wrath does remain on those who continue to rebel and reject Him. And in the Scriptures, Christ will stand for and speak boldly truth, bringing rebuke when needed. God calls us to righteousness. We are to pursue holiness. Those things are true. But what I hope we are reminded of this morning is that God's calls to holiness are not meant to be burdens, but delights for us. God doesn't create rules for the sake of rules, hoping to trip us up 
but always to help us experience his grace. That's why it's said in the Old Testament of the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty? God will judge. He must if he is the source of all justice, which we see in our passage here. He comes proclaiming justice. But the heart of the Lord, which we see in the passage today, is one that desires mercy. He delights in being able to forgive. At his core is love, generous love, eager and willing to forgive transgression and sin, and he is patient with those who betray him. So let's take this passage from Isaiah, that third interpretive key, and use it as our guide to look at the merciful heart of Christ that's being shown to us this morning. Because as Matthew said, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. There's no neat set of points I have for you this morning, just a collection of observations we're going to be making, hopefully leading us to marvel at and hope in this gracious Savior. So the first thing we see, verse 18, is that when we look at Jesus, we look at God himself. This is important for us to get, behold my servant whom I've chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. What should be very plain from this is that Jesus has been sent by God. That's face value. We've talked about this much before already, but the man that the Pharisees and the scribes are condemning is, in fact, sent from God. But it's more than that. The servant that's spoken about here in Isaiah, while at times in Isaiah represented Israel itself as God's servant on the earth, had a personal dimension to it. And was not speaking just about Israel broadly, but begins to narrow as Isaiah prophesies about a specific representative that would come on behalf of Israel. And as we see throughout the prophets, even here in Matthew, it comes into focus who that representative is. And that representative that God was going to send would be like, unlike any other man or prophet that he had sent before. Yes, he would be from the line of David. Yes, he would come to reign as king. Yes, he would be Messiah and Savior. But this one coming is the beloved of God, the one in whom God is well pleased, the one on whom the Spirit of God will rest upon. At the end of chapter 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Only God can give us rest in that way. In verse 6 of chapter 12, Jesus says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. To the Jew, there was nothing greater on the earth than the temple. The temple was the very dwelling place of God. In in verse 8, Jesus says, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is a direct call to the God-man pictured in Daniel 7. And to claim this God-man was Lord of the Sabbath was to claim control 
over only that which God controls. When these scribes and these Pharisees contend with and accuse Jesus, they aren't simply fighting with another prophet from God. They certainly aren't contending against a false teacher. They are, in fact, leveling charges against God himself. We read in the book of Philippians that Jesus was in the very form of God. We read in Hebrews that Jesus is the radiance and the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. If you want to know what God is like, then you look at Jesus. Many people claim they don't like the God of the Old Testament, but they like Jesus. Such a claim is impossible to make because the two are the same. And I would argue, if you read the Old Testament, you will see the same mercy, the same grace that we're going to talk about this morning. Again, the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. If there's things that you find attractive about Jesus, his humility, his love, his gentleness, then you must import those same traits upon God himself, for Jesus is God and reveals to us the Father's very heart. If you're curious what God is like, get to know Jesus. So we see God when we see Jesus. And Jesus alone speaks the very words of God. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Jesus came to reveal God to us through his actions, his personhood, and through his words. The Pharisees claimed their tradition was on par with God's word. The Pharisees attacked Jesus because he didn't support their interpretation of God's law. But what they were failing to grasp was that Jesus was the originator of God's law in the first place. All the prophets, all the wise men who spoke in times past, spoke the words and oracles of God that God had moved them to. Jesus, though, speaks as one who has authority within himself. It's, in fact, the word of Jesus that the other prophets were conveying to humanity. And it's the ongoing word of Christ that the apostles spoke of and wrote in the scriptures. Jesus isn't just the messenger of God. He is the message of God. And he alone is our interpretive guide to understanding God and his word. When Jesus says the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, he's saying to the Pharisees, I'm the one who defines the Sabbath, not you. If you disagree with how I'm describing it, then you're failing to hear God who's speaking to you. We've hit this before, and we'll hit it again, because the Scriptures remind us over and over again, it's not our own notions about God that matters, but what we see in Jesus Christ and what God has spoken to us through His Son. So any idea or theology or philosophy or tradition that we hold that seems to misalign with Scripture must bow to Scripture. And when we seek to understand the Scriptures, Christ is our interpretive lens for them all, revealing to us the very heart of God, which is what I'm very excited for us to meditate on now because God is good. 
what we see about this God who is revealed is that he is gentle and lowly in heart. Verse 19, he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. The internet is a hotbed for self-exaltation. We all know this. It creates a platform for anyone and everyone to quarrel and cry aloud. Everyone's vying for the right to have the last word, to have their voice heard, shouting above one another that they might be listened to. It really goes without saying we live in an age that's so rooted in quarreling that it almost seems like civil discourse and discussion is a relic of time gone by. But this is not the spirit of our Lord. Notice here, Jesus doesn't come ripping into the synagogue saying, guess what, everybody? You're wrong and I'm right. I let my disciples pluck weed on the Sabbath. No, these Pharisees came at him. From what we can see here, it seems strange that they would have even noticed the disciples plucking the grain unless they had been trailing them looking for something to pounce on. This is, in fact, what happens with the healing. Jesus heals only after they present him with this insincere question, meaning to challenge and to trap him. These men are quarrelsome and they are out for a fight. This is not the spirit of the Lord. Yes, the Lord proclaims truth. Yes, the Lord will drive out the money changers in the temple when he needs to. Jesus is not weak. He is, after all, proclaiming justice and will one day bring justice to victory. But Jesus is not eager to get into a fight with somebody. Jesus is not unable to listen to others. We're told in the book of Philippians that we, as followers of Christ, should let our reasonableness be known to everyone. Jesus brought correction when they attacked, but he didn't poke fun. He didn't look for a good jab or revel in a winning argument. Jesus proclaimed the truth, but he did so humbly and patiently with a world that was eager and ready to fight. We can learn a lot from Jesus, and we should be challenged here by Jesus when we're tempted to speak or to type with stinging barbs, even thinking of an argument we might have with a loved one. Jesus had every reason to boast. He was the Lord of all creation. He truly was always right in any and every argument. Yet he was gentle. He was self-controlled. He was patient. He was reasonable and slow to anger. We ought to mirror that spirit to the world because it's refreshing. Which is what the Lord is. He is cool water to the parched tongue. I turn on the TV or, or watch things online at times and you just can't take it. It's so, it's just too much. Not so with Christ. He is refreshing. If you find yourself weary from the bombastic, incessant cycle of shouting, quarreling, and self-exaltation of the outrage age that we live in, you will find in Christ one in whom you will find rest. He never sacrifices truth. 
He's always gentle and reasonable, always seeking the welfare and well-being of others, which is what we see next. When we read, a a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, we're reminded that the heart of Christ is to do good to man. Again, it's not to win an argument, it's to do good. This ties directly with the quote, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, which comes out of the book of Hosea, where God is rebuking the people because their love for him and their love for each other is as fleeting as the dew on the grass. We're told in scripture that God is love. And the whole point of all that God is and all that God does and all that God calls us to is love. Thus, God hates sin because sin is the opposite of love. And all that God has instituted over time was intended to cultivate love in people's hearts. Love for God and loving mercy toward one another. We see two views of Religion contrasted in this passage. The Pharisees, as we've said, had a view of religion that elevated religious ritual and rule-keeping over love. It didn't matter how you felt about a person or what the result of an action was, so long as you followed the established practice. Well, Jesus says this is not the right way to think about things. Particularly, as we discuss here, the matter of the Sabbath. Jesus, in verses 3 through 8, lays out three examples for the Pharisees to show them how they misunderstood the Scriptures and missed the heart of God. First, we get this example of David, God's anointed king. When David and his companions were on the run from Saul, they were without food at one point. And at one point, it wound up that the priest let them eat of the bread of the presence, which was only to have been consumed by the priest himself. This went against the ritual that had been established by God himself in the law. However, Jesus points out that the scriptures do not condemn David nor the priests for this action, indicating that there can be a higher purpose that God intends to accomplish that supersedes even the established ritual that he had handed down. In this case, namely food and provision for his anointed. He never intended for David to starve in order to make sure only the priest ate the bread. The point of the rules around the bread of the presence was never intended to supersede the mercy that God has for his people. We then see this second example of Jesus taking the next step in the argument. And using the Sabbath itself as the example. He says, you're claiming it's unlawful to grab this wheat on the Sabbath. Saying a person can't do any kind of work any time. They had very strict rules. You could do this, you couldn't do this. You could do this, you couldn't do this. And they were drawing lines all around all these things. Yet the law of God itself refutes your argument. That kind of oppressive intent that you have devised is not what I meant. The priests themselves... Prepare offerings and offer prayers on the Sabbath. And they are not found to be guilty of profaning the Sabbath, even though they certainly are doing work on it. And why aren't they found guilty? 
because they have a higher duty to the temple, to offering those sacrifices to God. So this goes to show these laws you're holding in this oppressive way is being abused. You're missing the point. It's okay to serve in the temple on the Sabbath because the temple work is necessary per the law. Is it not then okay to extend mercy and love to someone on the Sabbath or to offer this bread to David, mercy and love that's at the very core of who I am? This argument's continued down in the example of the sheep in the pit. If a person's sheep falls into a pit on the Sabbath, would that person not lift it out? The implication is, of course, they would. Even the Pharisees would agree with that. It's a person's property, their livelihood, and the well-being of the sheep is at stake. And Jesus says, of how much more value is a man than a sheep? This is exactly how your father views mankind. He never intended for the Sabbath or the temple regulations to be used to do harm to his people. If you're unwilling to do a kindness to another person on the Sabbath because you think it's going too far and walking past the self-constructed fences you've placed up in your religious framework, you've missed the point. Of course the Lord would desire you to do good on the Lord's day. And this argument is concluded with the Hosea reference of mercy over sacrifice. But how can this be? Did God not lay out the proper practices for the temple? Why was it not wrong for David to eat the bread? Or or why isn't it wrong for the priests to do their work? Or, Or how isn't retrieving a lamb considered work on the Sabbath? Well, the answer is found, I believe, by Jesus reminding us of the Hosea passage making his claim to be Lord over the Sabbath and reminding us that something greater than the temple is here. Yes, the people of Israel were to follow the protocols given to them about temple worship. They were important. And yes, God took those things very seriously. And yes, the people did need to observe the Sabbath. But the point of all of those things, the rituals handed down by the Lord, was not to secure salvation as the Pharisees treated them. In fact, we read that the blood of bulls and goats do nothing to actually remove sin. Nothing. The purpose of these practices that the Lord established was to remind people of His holiness It was to give them outworking expressions of obedience in their worship. And it was ultimately to point forward for them to the actual completion of all of these things. Speaking after the resurrection of Christ, Paul says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. Or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, these are a shadow of the things to come but the substance belongs to Christ. All of these practices that God instituted were given to prime people's hearts for the coming of Jesus Christ and to make him known. Jesus is the true temple giving us access to God. Jesus is the Sabbath rest freeing us from sin and letting us enter into God's presence for full and eternal care. Jesus is the great priest and the great sacrifice. 
Therefore, the priest could offer sacrifices in the temple. David was able to eat the bread of the presence, and the sacrifices of bulls and rams ultimately don't matter if they aren't rooted in loving mercy and the heart of Christ. They're representatives. The point of all of these things was to do good to man and to show man their need for the existence of their blessed Savior, Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the things themselves. Now, there there is nuance in here. There are tricky things in here. We are talking about rituals and the sacrificial system. We're not talking about God doesn't say it's okay to go murder somebody if you need a loaf of bread. That's not what we're talking about this morning. But it all can be boiled down to this. What God cares about most is your good. He is not primarily concerned that you said the Lord's Prayer in church, that you wore the right outfit, that you memorized enough scripture, that you attended small groups and Bible studies, that you had your quiet time, that you fasted, that you prayed, whatever it is, whatever the practice, if the heart of it is self-saving obligation, then the point is missed and it is worthless. No, God wants us to experience His love. He gave us these good and gracious things that we ought to do so that we would experience His grace. They're mercies to us. They don't save us. We aren't slaves to them. Which is good because if they were the means that we turn to, attending church, saying enough prayers, reading enough scripture, if these were our means of salvation as the Pharisees like to believe, we would all be destroyed. Because the reality is none of us measures up. We are all bruised reeds and smoldering wicks. But what we see here is that Jesus' heart is patient and gentle towards those bruised reeds and smoldering wicks. A bruised reed doesn't do anyone much good. It's bent over. It can't be straightened again, at least not within a human's control. And the faint wick is finished. Most people would clip the reed and they would snuff out the wick. But not Jesus. So what are the bruised reeds and the faint wicks? Well, as we said, the reality is it's us. We all are bruised reeds and faint wicks. The Pharisees think that they're standing perfectly upright and that their flame grows bright. But their arrogance betrays them and only further confirms their brokenness. The scriptures make clear all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and turned away from Him. All of us are much more like the man with the withered hand and the crowds that need healing than we are like some righteous person who could boldly walk up to the gates of heaven on our own and say, let me in. We can't, by the way. Jesus is patient and gentle toward the bruised reeds and the faint wicks. Now, this assurance that's spoken of is only a comfort to those who recognize that they are bruised reeds and faint wicks, those who feel heavy laden and are looking for rest for their souls. Because the day will come, as we said, when justice is done. 
And those who did not turn to Christ for their comfort and salvation will be called to account. We'll see this in the next few chapters ahead. Christ talks a lot about our response to the news of the kingdom. And we all will be found guilty if we do not have the salvation of the Lord. But for those who recognize their need, who feel their weakness, who acknowledge their sin, Christ offers comfort. He will not crush them. The Pharisees had no place for the weak or the struggling. The Pharisees wanted nothing to do with the broken. They despised Jesus for spending time with tax collectors and sinners. The Pharisees crushed the spirits of those they should have been leading to God. Their self-righteous system resulted in a loss for everyone who adhered to it. Those who failed to live up to the standards were crushed. And those who felt they had achieved them were puffed up. But neither were drawn to God, as was the point. Yet Jesus welcomes our need. He walks with us in our weaknesses. Over time, breathes life into our faint wicks and straightens our bent spines And because of this, not only the Jews, but the Gentiles and all who would come to Christ have hope because Christ offers victory in the end. Apart from Christ, we would not want to hear in verse 20 and 21 that he will bring justice to victory because we've all egregiously sinned and we deserve punishment and eternal separation from our God, but because of Christ, because of the Lord who's gentle and lowly in heart, who is exceedingly, he is exceedingly patient. Read the Old Testament. There's a lot of judgment in there. Yes, there is, but read it and notice how long the Lord allows the people, pardon the crassness of this, but to give them the bird. It's what we do. It's what we've done to God. Most of us would be aflamed immediately. You're driving down the road, someone does that to you. Someone did that to me the other day. I haven't had that happen forever. You're just like, oh! God gives 400 years to the Amalekites before bringing judgment for their sin. How long does God let Israel go over and over again as they desecrate his temple? Adam and Eve sinned. Their first child murdered another child. Yet God let time go on before the flood came. It's been thousands of years since Christ and we keep sinning. God's patient. He's patient with us. And it's because he's gentle and lowly in heart. He's kind. He wishes that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And because of this, we have hope. There's no hope in the Pharisees' system. There's no assurance. How can one know if we've done enough? How can one keep up with the growing list of religious to-dos? I think that way about society. It's always changing. What you got to do to be on the right side of history? What you got to think? What you got to say? You can't keep up. 
But that's not Christ. As I was finishing up this message, I had Chris Rice's song, Come to Jesus, come to my mind. If you've heard that, the lyrics are these. Weak and wounded sinner, lost and left to die. Oh, raise your head, for love is passing by. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus and live. Though these Pharisees sought to kill him, yet as he moved on from that place, many came to them and he healed them. Christ, this Christ is glorious. Church, this is our God. This is who he is. He loves us. At the end of our service today, we're going to have a time of prayer, and I specifically felt a burden on my heart for those here who actually feel, acutely feel these things today. They feel heavy laden. They feel you're aware you are that bent reed and that faint wick, which we all are, but sometimes you're just in that place. You need to know the Lord's care is there for you, whatever situation it is you're facing. So I encourage you after service to come up. We'll have members of our prayer team up here to pray for you and receive the mercy of God. But let's pray together now. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are patient with us. We thank you that you are gentle and lowly. You control the cosmos. You hold all things in your hand. You are holy and glorious and exalted. And you could smite each and every one of us here immediately. You could have wiped things out the minute Adam and Eve sinned, but you didn't. You are merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and sin to those who call upon you. I pray this morning that we all would call upon you. If there are those here this morning who have not called upon you, I pray, Lord, that you would move in their hearts that they would. And for all of us, that we would feel and receive the compassionate mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. He cares. Father, thank you that you care. You care about everything we're going through. Every struggle we have, you care and you are with us. You give us hope where there is no hope. Let us place our hope and trust in you this morning. We pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Nick Kidwell given at Valley Creek Church. For more information on the church and other messages, please visit us online at www.valleycreek.church.